everybody! It's the H-Word Podcast! Hi, everyone! I'm Becky. And I'm Dan. And I've decided, after listening to the past couple episodes, to perk up my, the tone of my voice no matter how I'm feeling. Because I think it... Really? I think it makes for better energy. Okay. Uh, but what if what <laughs> if we know what we're going into is really somber and bleak? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> okay. We'll see. Hi! I, I don't know. Okay, well, here, <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing this week is that I've been trying to figure out with the skills that I have how to use them best to be helpful. Okay. And comedy being one, arguably, of my skills. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like maybe people need some reprieve. Oh. Uh, I don't okay. know. Okay. This this is interesting because this, this is a part of the continuum of our discussion on when comedy is appropriate. And we were talking, uh, I think, last episode about, um, you know, putting – comedy back into social media and whether it's appropriate, especially from white comedians. Yeah. And uh, is your position changing on this? I Well, it's always shifting. So also last week, I, I felt like just co- comedy about nothing related to this, maybe we need to hit the brakes on. But like, if you're... This is too meta because we're talking about it while we're doing it. But like, okay, for instance, to use this delivery system to talk about difficult stuff is what I've always considered this job to be because the comedy makes the pills go down. Okay. Now everyone knows my secret. (laughs) I've been trying to shove pills down your throat for 25 years. But I have. Um, Okay. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to land with this, but it's sort of where I've been sitting. So as long as the... As long as the comedy is infused with purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this leads right into one of my potential hopefuls. I'm going to call it a potential hopeful. Okay. Which is, um, and this this came to me via former guest, Maria Aaron Jones from Albuquerque. And we talked last night, and she said, have you seen this video that Sasha Baron Cohen did, and or this thing he did? So he infiltrated... Uh, a 3% rally. Now, I didn't even know what the 3% was. It's I don't. some sort of white supremacist, racist nightmare stuff. Okay. Um, and it was something about, I don't know. It's honestly it gives me the creeps to talk about. But he went and like infiltrated the performance space, brought his own security so that no one could drag him off stage. And then sang a bunch of like kind of offensive stuff about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Anthony Fauci and, th- and things like that and got people to sing along. I don't know how I mm. feel about it. Um, but that- you're potentially hopeful about that. Potentially, because I can't figure out what's like really upsetting. Also, when you think about, I guess on the online, you could see this no matter who you are, but like you think about who the audience is at that rally. Yeah. Then his action wouldn't be potentially traumatizing there. I don't know. It's hard. This um, shit's hard. It reminds me of uh, something I saw, which really reeks of um, Facebook myth, but uh, if true, uh, huge if true, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> there was a, uh, the, the story I heard was that um, someone started a white supremacist group over the course of a couple of years, a Facebook group, um, and you know, started it subtly, and then got people to be to say more and more egregious things. And then, apparently, last week, 
like closed the door on the group and posted the final post, which was that I'm sending all of this information to your employers, which you've also given me via like it was like um, it was a racist trap. Right now, again, it reeks of myth, but is it good? uh, (laughs) Is it good to do that? I guess. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what's your opinion on, um, you know, removing the blackface episodes of 30 Rock? Well, we've talked about one of those episodes before. Um, uh, right. But now they've now Tina Fey uh, has requested that they remove it from the catalog. Um, how do I feel about that? I I don't have an opinion. Okay, I don't yeah. I don't feel that I my opinion is means anything. Uh-huh. Um, because the arguments are, take it away, it's hurtful, or keep it there as a document. I mean, the one thing I will say is the episode that we talked about, the thing that I found amazing was Tracy Morgan's performance in it. Yes. So that's gone. Um, but, yeah, as a white person, I just, I, I don't know what to do with those episodes. Is Are we, right, hiding, yeah. are we t- hiding Tina Fey's misdeeds, or are we removing trauma? I'm going to... <laughs> yes, I see both sides, and I've heard both sides from black people. But well, I'm like, going to defer to other decision makers. My, What on earth would I add to this conversation is kind of how I feel. Okay. How about you? Yeah, I can see both sides. Uh, and so I I don't know if even that opinion will be dated soon. But yeah, well, neither like, and neither one is harming you or I. Right. That's why I don't. I'm like... This can be decided by someone who's not me. Obviously, it will be. But I mean, like, even voices like mine. Uh Uh-huh. Right. But that's interesting, right? Like, um, there is the – that is an idea about racism is that, well, it doesn't affect you or I, so we can't make a call about it. But it's like, doesn't – you know, like – don't we also need to make a call on what we see is racist in the world and call it out? I don't know. I mean, yes, we do. <laughs> Sorry. But when we were talking about issues like that, it has been called out by voices more versed than ours. It's not something that's going unchecked. Yes. Okay. Okay. Like, I hear black voices saying this is ridiculously offensive and upsetting. Yeah. And I... Yeah. I add my voice of support that I, I see you and hear you and understand and agree. I don't understand what it feels like, but I, you know. Yeah. But as far as what course of action, I was actually thinking about statues this okay. week, too, because there's sort of like, take away the statues, then some people saying, leave them so that Canada doesn't forget its atrocities. Uh-huh. And this is another one where I'm like, these are not my calls to make. And that thing of like, shouldn't we be able to make calls? Well, that just speaks to the fact that white people are in power everywhere making the decisions. These things wouldn't be happening if that wasn't the case. Right. I guess I'm just trying to transfer it to my normal life where, um, like, I'm seeing now a lot of people talk about, like, oh, your business is claiming to not be racist. Here's a list of things that occurred while I worked there that were racist towards me. Um, And sort of infused in that is like, and the other white colleagues, like, first of all, I put myself in the position of the racist and I'm like, oh God, I'm going to do something racist. And then also I put myself in the position of the silent colleagues who don't call it out and allow the suffering to continue. Um, And so... It sort of starts to feel like my responsibility going forward to call out those things when I see them. 
And so it kind of makes it feel like, okay, well, you gotta, you gotta like, um, you gotta get in there and make some judgments, some judgment calls. Yeah. Right? Not, but then you're also you're speaking on behalf of other people, which could be harmful and hurtful. I, I know, I, I get what you're feeling, but. Because that has traditionally been my behavior is, is what you're saying. It's like, well, I mean, I'm, who am I to say? I'm, you know, and like, and then it's like, but that's what I've been doing and it feels like I need to change. Okay. And so I got to do something else. These are two different things. You, okay. Once what something's are? been called out and is being handled, I don't need to add my voice that doesn't have any perspective on it into the mix. You use, Granted, yes. So so that's separate from when you see something happening, you can call it out. You also might be told you're wrong if you're calling something out on behalf of other people, but it's to use your privilege in that space and in that moment to say something. I'm wrestling with the decision to do something like this right now, mm-hmm. personally. Right. Um, yeah. But those are different things. And, and to me, it goes back to the, the concept of like, we don't need your white guilt right now. So mm-hmm. if it's exercising your guilt, then it's not useful if that's the only thing that's happening. If you're calling out something that nobody has mentioned yet, sure. But as far as things that have been mentioned, listen to other people. Don't listen to me. That's different than not saying anything. Um. Yes. Things that have been mentioned. I agree. Yes. I, 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 have, I did shift the example to something – that wasn't mentioned. I, I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about microaggressions in the workplace. Um, yeah, I don't even know how to go about policing that. I think we got bigger yeah. fish to fry right now. If you okay, can yeah, get sure. Rid of them, cool. But like, let's not be distracted by the big, big goals. Like, oh, okay. Like there was a tweet today. Fuck, I can't remember who it was. Um, that was like, you know, this many cities painted defund the police on the streets. Like yeah. one has done anything as far as policy and legislation. That's a very loose paraphrasing. But these sorts of things I think are really important to remember. Of like, where okay. can we put our energy, I think. Yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, there, the, But there, there, is a, there is something to be said for... Um, uh, just because there are worse things doesn't mean you need to not attend to the bad thing in front of you. Um, because yeah, this is a this is an argument like this is an argument that I've heard from uh, racists essentially who will say things like, um, you know, oh, suddenly we care. Suddenly it's like suddenly we care about the lives of uh, black people in America. Meanwhile, look at the Uyghurs. You know, and it's like. Okay, yeah, but we're we're just trying to do something. Well, you so, can have like, an argument with that person. Yeah, sure. No, I, I, I'm saying the argument is the argument is that the the argument is the bigger fish to fry, right? It's like, well, you're gonna you're gonna say that North America's racist. Look at how much worse it is over here, and I, so I, I guess I just uh, that, that's just what that brings up for me. Okay. Well, so my thinking on that is like these microaggressions are so ingrained into us and the people around us that I don't think I can see all of them or deal with all of them. And if I spent all my time just working on that, like if I see something, sure, say something. But if you spend all your time just trying to deconstruct that in yourself and others, then we're not really supporting the big movements that are happening right now, if that makes sense, as far as like where you expend your energy. 
Oh, okay. Like All trying right. to understand my own microaggressions, knowing that they exist, I think is one thing, but they're every, it's just like permeates. Uh-huh. I want them gone, but I'd also uh-huh. like to, you know, go to a protest, make sure my friends are okay, who, some of whom are in peril. Like this is where I'd like to put my energies right now. And I think it they might be better used, I think. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have my other hopeful. Please. Um, Gen Z on the internet. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's a bit old, but this one was like at least fun. Is all the K-pop stands like on signing up for Trump's rally, not going, and then they fig- yeah. they figured out a new like culture jamming, which is going to his campaign website, filling up their shopping carts with stuff, and then just leaving the tab open and never checking out. So it's like gumming up the website. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and do you get the sense that it's like? actual people doing this or like are they setting up programs to do this kind of thing i think it's people i and you know what the thing is i don't know i don't understand the technology well enough but the kids do so the the few little things i've read you know because i'm an old fogey who is like i just tried to i just learned that you could do this one thing on twitter that um one of the things was like with the trump rally and buying tickets um was that people were putting this up on TikTok and they were saying like, whoa, wouldn't it suck if we bought tickets to this and couldn't go? Oh my God, it's so easy to buy tickets, but we shouldn't buy them if we can't go. They put up videos like that. <laughs> They'd also take them down after 24, 48 hours because that way, like I didn't hear about this happening until after the rally. Nobody did. Right. So yeah. they also it kept was like, it. It was like as it started, people, it, the story started coming in. Yeah. They, yeah. so they kept it quiet through gaming these systems and um, the same thing with the shopping carts and some people are like, well, is that matter? Does that, is that even an action that does anything? Well, these are kids who shouldn't be out in the streets necessarily and who don't have a vote and they do have phones. So yeah. they're, they're doing something. They're making their voices heard. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so scared about all these technologies and platforms just being run by Zuckerberg monsters. Um, but it's cool to see the kids subvert them. Indeed. Because that's not what the people in charge want to have happening. Yeah. You got any hopefuls? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, I guess I buried the lead here, but I saw you today. <laughs> that's right. We saw each other in person. <laughs> it was so cool. I got way too excited. Dan gave me a bike. And we didn't record because we were in a moving car, both wearing masks with the windows down. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really uncomfortable and very worth it. <laughs> Wear a mask. <laughs> Wear a mask, you goofs. Um, but now I have a bicycle. That's fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I'm going to go pump up those tires and might go bike on the closed down lakeshore that's only for cyclists. Might just dive right into the culture. Oh, do it. Yeah. yeah. Um... Okay, I have an interview that I'm really excited about with Paul Taylor, CEO of Foodshare, and also he was the NDP candidate for MP in my riding, Parkdale High Park. I'm amazing. so grateful that he sat down at his computer to record this with me, and uh, he's wonderful. It's illuminating. Excellent. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Becky. Thanks, Dan. Bye.
everybody, it's Becky. I'm back, and I'm extremely excited to be joined from across the city by Paul Taylor. Paul, hello. Hi, Becky. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for saying yes. Um, so to begin with, I usually ask my guests to introduce themselves. Sort of, how do you define yourself in this world? Yeah. So I guess um, I'm Paul Taylor, as you said, and I'm, I'm an anti-poverty activist, and I've been so pretty much um, for most of my life, um, but I also have run non-profit organizations. So right now I'm the executive director of a, a charity called Food Share Toronto. Uh, yeah. And how did you end up gravitating towards that line of work? Uh, I guess it's, you know, really um, my childhood experience. You know, I was grew up as a poor kid that was food insecure and really looked to, you know, uh, at one point once I got old enough to work, really looked to, to do work that um, was supporting folks that struggled the way that I struggled as a child. So I started off, um, I used to be a teacher and then I stopped teaching and started working at a homeless youth shelter. I quit teaching to work at a homeless youth shelter. Um, and then have just been working in nonprofits ever since, uh, trying to do what I can to make life better for folks who are struggling the most. Yeah. And um, I became aware of you because I live in Parkdale High Park and you became politically engaged, right? Yeah. So in the last election in October, I ran for um, to be MP for the NDP in Parkdale High Park and really kind of along the same vein, you know, looking for opportunities to do what I can to make life better for folks, uh, especially folks that are struggling the most. So uh, I recognize that, you know, charity can only go so far. And some of the biggest issues that people faced, I think, are best addressed by effective public policy. So, Well, and that's an interesting point, because that's, that's a place that we're at sort of right now, as far as like, you know, community grassroots protest mes- message spreading, um, and the interaction of that with policy engaging with your political leaders, right? Yeah, and I, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really important, you know, I think the whole realm of, of, uh, policymaking and, you know, the actors involved in policymaking, those are spaces that are, are in, in a lot of ways quite white. You know, and I think lots of folks, when we look at the data around who is impacted by things like poverty and food insecurity the most, they are not quite white. So I think it's really important for us to look at avenues and how we can dismantle some of the barriers that prevent racialized folks, in particular black and indigenous people, uh, from meaningfully accessing um, positions of power um, politically. Now, um with all this conversation right now, I, I know that I sometimes feel, I've actually been really inspired by what's been happening in the past few weeks, but also feel with major change like that, really overwhelmed and daunted. Um, what how, what are the first steps in dismantling, in your opinion, in dismantling these, you know, racialized insecurities for food, political systems? I mean, I feel like voting voting is important, but from the inside, I don't quite understand the systems. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess that's the, the the first piece that needs to happen. I think more and more people need to, and we're seeing that. I think that's what this moment presents an opportunity, I suppose, for more and more folks to engage in the conversation and mm-hmm. actually applying, you know, a decolonial, anti-racist lens to themselves. Um, and look, and then going further to look at the spaces and the spheres where we exercise power whether that's around the dinner table with our families in conversation with our friends 
or in our workplaces. So I don't necessarily think that this work need, um, you know, is specific to one institution, one individual, or one organization. Right. Um, but instead, the work that we all have to do to um, apply a, a, a much more decolonial lens uh, and one that is anti-racist, and in particular, you know, uh, one that um, works to dismantle anti-black racism within within everyone. And then, because all these institutions and organizations, they are in large part, um, you know, uh, groups of people coming together, bringing their own uh, ideas uh, that's been largely created by society, but they're groups of people coming together. So I think there's work that can happen organizationally within institutions across the country and beyond, but there's also, I think, really important work that needs to happen within each of us to understand the ways in which we're upholding white supremacy, the ways in which we are perpetuating anti-black racism, uh, anti-indigenous racism, and the like. Yeah. And what have you seen when it comes to specifically food security? Food security has been a really interesting space. You know, um, for me, I've done a lot of learning. So I've been at FoodShare for the last uh, just over three years. And one of the first things I did was I spent some time going to visit, um, you know, a number of folks engaged in our programs and services and one of the things that I found was predominantly folks that were accessing our programs and involved in, in various initiatives were black and brown folks, largely black folks mm-hmm. like myself. So I thought, wait a minute, you know, as a, as a country, as a movement, you know, when we talk about food insecurity, we really, we talk pretty globally, you know, and, and the language yeah. that we consistently use um, is that there are 4 million people that are food insecure uh, but we needed to, I, I felt like it was, there was an opportunity for food share to learn a little bit more about the interconnections of food insecurity and anti-black racism because there had been little studied on that. Um, so we partnered up with Proof at the University of Toronto to launch a study that looked at the Canadian uh, Community H- Household Survey to do just that. And what we found was pretty uh, illuminating. Some some of it was, you know, things that we imagined or that we guessed, but some of it was just uh, incredibly shocking. So I guess, you know, high level, what we learned is that quite simply, black folks are three and a half times more likely to be food insecure than white folks. Now, a couple other things that are of note, we took a look at, so, as you know, one of the things we understand, I should say, about food insecurity is that there are things that actually protect people, or when they, when they, they protect people from levels of food insecurity. So, for example, if someone's a homeowner, they're less likely to be food insecure, and that seems, you know, pretty obvious. Um, what we found in our research is that 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 is only true, uh, or that isn't true in the same way, I should say, for black folks. So when we look at levels of food insecurity for black homeowners uh, at 4.5%, it's just about equivalent to the percentage of white renters, 14.3%, that report food insecurity. We also found that it didn't matter, um, you know, sorry, and I, I'll, I'll say this part first, you know, we understand uh, in, uh, more globally in this country that if someone is in a single parent household, they're more likely to be food insecure. Right. When we dive in to the experiences of black folks in this country, that is not true. 
It doesn't matter how many parents, um, you know, black folks maintain a significantly higher probability of food insecurity. The same is true when it comes to immigration status. It doesn't matter if black respondents or um, black respondents of the survey were born in Canada or born abroad. The risk remains consistently high. There's one other thing, I uh, maybe two other things I want to yeah. add uh, to this research that really uh, shocked us. One was we looked at where people derive their income uh, who, who report food insecurity. And we know in this country that 62% of the people that say that report that they're food insecure um, uh, derive their income from employment. There's also a portion that derives their income from social assistance. And what we saw around social assistance was really quite alarming. We saw that white folks actually receive more in social assistance than black folks do. And that sounds completely... Yeah. How is that? (laughs) Yeah. How does that, how does that happen? Well, (laughs) that is to us evidence of anti-black racism. What we think is happening is that social assistance includes uh, welfare as well as disability income supports. Uh, So what's likely happening is that um, black folks are less likely to be approved for disability income supports. And when, when we are approved, we're approved for less than what white folks are receiving. Right. Yeah, I've, I have personal experience in that realm of welfare and disability, not myself, but in my family. And yeah, it's, um, it, it, it does seem like a more subjective process than one would hope. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, yeah. Um, and that's what that's what this research unearthed. And even you know, but it also it did something else. You know, it, it challenged some of the assumptions that I think have been held by uh, food movement actors. You know, we used to, as a food movement, say that well, we don't need a, a another basic income, or at least I used to say we don't need another basic income pilot. We actually have a basic income in this country. Uh, and that's for seniors uh, in things like the Guaranteed Income Supplement and Old Age Security. Because right. what we see when it comes to food insecurity is that as soon as someone becomes a senior and they can um, start to draw on retirement income, uh, their le- level of food insecurity for seniors um, uh, drops pretty significantly. Hmm. Again, not true for black folks. Um, and and. You know, our, our, uh, our hypothesis largely due to anti-black racism. Black folks are being paid less, promoted less, and, and able to then contribute less to things like the CPP uh, and the like. So how do we go about fixing that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think um, we've got to, like I said before, you know, we've got to, you know, I guess the first part I talked about was around, you know, the, the, the personal work. Yeah. But I think organizations, especially the organizations that provide, you know, vi- institutions that provide such vital services and supports really need to prioritize um, uh, looking to dismantle white supremacy within their organizations and looking to uh, dismantle anti-black racism. And I think there are ways uh, that that can be done. There certainly are ways that that can be done. You know, I think... When it comes to institutionally, we know that folks with uh, names that are associated with black folks are less likely to get a job interview. They're less likely to get a callback. 
So there are things that we can do as part of our processes, uh, institutional processes around anonymizing resumes. Um, you know, actually, you know, when we post positions, when when um, employers post positions, you know, you can per- post on Workopolis and good jobs and the like, but also thinking about what it means to value lived experience and where and how you're assessing lived experience and how you're posting in such a way that connects you with people with lived experience of the issues that that we're working on. Yeah, I, um, all right. So this, this podcast ostensibly is about hope and it was sort of in the, in the broadest sense, it doesn't have to be a cheery, happy news, um, conversation, but you, I know just from from what I've read about you online and from reading your platform that you've been at this for quite a while. Does what elements of what's been going on make you feel hopeful, if any? Yeah, so really um, excited and enthused by the organizing that I'm seeing and the real demonstration of people power. Yeah, and you know we haven't seen something this type of mobilization, uh, broad-based mobilization in a really long time. So the direct action and the organizing that really is confronting the state and confronting corporations, uh, I think is is really important and gives me um, you know hope that there there's potential for significant change because I think those are the folks that have created these inequities and I, I think we can allow them to continue to do so. I also think you know. And I'm just going to go back a little bit. Sure. Um, in the early 80s, um, in response to a recession, so when we saw huge growth in, actually that's when the first food bank opened in this country, and huge growth in the development of food-based nonprofits, something really spectacular happened in this country, and it happened without any political debate, no conversation in parliament. We went from the very European kind of model of income-based interventions to support people who were poor or food insecure. Mm-hmm. to food-based interventions. So that's when we saw a huge proliferation of food banks. Any, any conversations around poverty or hunger are, are coupled with conversations around food bank drives and food banking. So food banks do not solve food insecurity, and they certainly don't solve poverty. And we've seen the numbers of folks accessing food banks since then just continue to increase, and the number of food banks continue to increase. So what gives me hope now is actually that the federal government seems to be asserting something quite differently as a result of COVID-19. In providing the CERB, they're acknowledging that the intervention that people need in these types of situations or when they have uh, employment income shock is income. So I'm I'm excited about what this has the potential to do in terms of propelling the conversation around a basic income. But even in thinking about a basic income, I think we can't think about a basic income on its own. And I've heard quite a few people, you know, kind of position a basic income as a solution to everything. And I think, you know, it's one thing to say here is an intervention that we might be able to use on a go-forward basis. But I think even that um, could potentially reflect, you know, a white supremacist view because uh, or a view rooted in white supremacy. Because I think it's only we can only have the privilege of a go forward process if we haven't suffered the incredible pains and lost opportunity um, that's come from the past. So I think if we're going to talk about basic income, we have to have that conversation alongside a conversation around reparations. Uh, 
you know, to acknowledge, like I say, the suffering and the lost opportunity, um, the PTSD that institutions um, have inflicted, state-connected institutions have inflicted upon people. And the last thing I'll add in terms of what also excites me uh, about what's possible is, you know, as part of the conversation around defunding the police... You know, we're not, people are not saying let's defund the police um, so that we can have more of our tax dollars back in our pocket. They're saying let's defund the police to create the kind of caring, um, supportive country and cities and provinces that are all possible. We're talking about services. So for me, I think, you know, I'm excited by the possibility of a basic income, conversations about reparations, but also perhaps a guarantee of a basket of services that um, are all focused on advancing a decent quality of life instead of, you know, piecemeal interventions. So I think those things and the momentum that's building, that's pushing for those things um, and causing uh, governments to look at their budgets differently, whether it's the amount that's spent uh, on the Toronto Police Service or the amount that's spent on the RCMP, I think this moment, um, and I, I shouldn't call it this moment because I think what it is is a realization of the experiences of anti-black racism that black folks have, have uh, navigated for a very long time. Yes. I think this moment is, is when white people are talking about it and seeing it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think there is some, some excitement around the potential, but I'm also, also cautious Cautiously optimistic, I suppose. Well, yeah, I feel like, I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast before, that hope always has sort of two sides. Because <laughs> hope is something that is, you're investing in something that hasn't happened yet, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really glad that this is when our interview came to be, because um, I'm having concerns over the quickness that the news cycle wants to move on as if this is something that happened and finished, you know? And and I feel like we're only going to increase... Like like you said, it's not a moment. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not something I've, I've thought a, a huge amount about in terms of the news cycle, because I think we can't let news cycles dictate the changes that need to happen in our society. So I think as a, as a society, we're probably a bit too dependent on the news that, again, yeah. is informed by white supremacy. When we look at who owns the media, whose stories are being told, how are they framing the stories. So I'm trying less to rely on the media and its its potential to keep the conversation going, but instead more enthused by the organizing, the people on the streets, the people that are saying, we want to be heard whether the media is covering us or not, and we will not leave until we see change. So... That's the piece that I think hopefully, and, and maybe as a result of that continued determination and persistence, the media continues to, uh, to cover uh, the impact of that organizing. Or hopefully these media establishments can change. Well, yes, they, like any other institution, needs to look at tackling, uh, like I say, anti-black racism and white supremacy. So how, this is, this is another thing that's come up recently, is like getting, how we get our information and the bubbles in which we are kind of placed by media, by social media and all of that. How do you get your quote-unquote news or community information? Yeah, I've, I've um, you know, it's been connecting with folks through, I guess, two things. One is, you know, being in a position that's able, to, where, I, where I'm able to push for 
data, like the type of data that we collected through our partnership with Proof, you know, that had never been done before. Um, and it, it's not surprising that it had never been done before, you know, when it comes to large food organizations in this country, they're largely led by uh, white folks. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's been really important. And then I also see lots of the information sharing that's happening on, you know, social media and the like, where people, it's really for the first time in a long time, I think, delivering on, to some extent, that promise of um, being an organizing tool and a, more, a mobilizing tool, something that folks can connect with to engage with information that... that um, is independent on the mainstream media always. Yeah, and it, it feels like in order to make these um, platforms activist tools, they have to just push and push and push against the corporate entities who want it not to be that. Indeed. <laughs> you know, who have taken over the dream of the internet, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, when it comes to COVID-19, one of the things we're seeing, and, uh, you know, this has existed for a long time, but for me, one of the things that I'm reflecting on is that our approach hasn't been informed by a health equity approach. Um, because internet would be critical to that. We would ensure that communities, uh, low-income low communities, would have access to internet and it would be translated, um, the, the information around COVID-19 would be translated in a variety of languages. So I also think, yeah, we need to apply a health equity approach to so much of what we're, of what we're doing. So I know that, well, I assume you haven't done any studies over COVID-19, um, but sort of anecdotally, what have you noticed changing through food share? Or what sort of, is there anything alarming that's coming up? Well, you know, I, I, I guess this, this one for me, well, maybe I'll start with my walks that I go on in the morning. It's uh, the, way, the way I start my day. And I feel like I take in so much of the world um, and what's happening during those walks. And, you know, uh, pretty much from the beginning of the pandemic, um, I have seen buses and streetcars go by, and I, I, I feel like, oh, this pang, you know, who has, I, I feel for these folks that are having to not only go to work, likely, but also travel on the TTC, also yeah. say goodbye to their children. Uh, their children know that um, it's not safe. They know that they're not on, at school because it's not safe, but they're seeing their parents leave every day. And when I look in those windows, what I see is I see black and brown folks. I see, and often women, yeah. you know, forced to rely on public transit and expose themselves to risk during this pandemic. And they're often, um, you know, we know that they're likely going to low-income jobs that we've deemed essential during the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, not always paying them as such. And then they're going sometimes to work in jobs that don't provide enough PPE at work and often not enough sick days for people for when they get sick. Right. So, of course, as a result of all of this, we're seeing the highest concentration of COVID-19 cases in communities with higher black, indigenous and uh, racialized, other racialized folks. So that's that's the piece, too, where I think about, you know, we say that we have a universal health care in this country, but the first assertion I would make is that I think what we've got is we've got universal sick care. Um, and even then, uh, it's problematic. But I think if we really started thinking along the lines of a health care system and what that would look like, it would prioritize keeping us all healthy, not just giving us medicine when we're sick. 
So we shouldn't, in my mind, we shouldn't be thinking about a healthcare system uh, that's divorced from things like access to affordable and safe housing, affordable fresh food, livable wages, childcare, and all of those types of uh, social protections in the form of income um, need to be at a at a. Um, at a, at a, they need to be adequate. They need to be enough uh, to help keep people healthy so that people can purchase the things that they need. Yeah, well, and, and the stuff you brought out too about the CERB, that it really isn't any kind of controlled experiment in universal basic income because if you, you're you not allowed to turn down work, even if it's dangerous. Indeed, indeed. And you know, um, not only, but, but also, I'm going to say that we, I don't think we need any more studies. On basic yeah. income. I think, uh, you know, lots of people got really excited with when Ontario introduced the basic income pilot. And what I, what seemed to happen is that people almost seemed to think that the Ontario government had introduced basic income solely for saying the words basic income. But it was a pilot that was extended beyond their existing mandate. So more hope and prayers, hope and prayers. Um, and then we just saw another government come along and scrap it. So we have a basic income in this country. And, you know, we can study the impact of that. We see the impact of that, uh, as I said, around food security. You know, once people can get that basic income, that guaranteed income supplement and old age security, they are much less likely to be food insecure. And it's just as soon as someone becomes a senior, you know. So I feel like we don't need any more studies. What we need is action. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, nonprofit organizations and governments kind of work separately and they have separate tacts. So, what drew you to the political systems after community work? Yeah, um, you know, as a nonprofit, you know, as an organization that's focused on making sure people have enough food to eat, we recognize that no program, no initiative uh, is going to put um, we can't set minimum wage. We can't set, um, you know, things like policies that help us challenge climate change uh, from our vantage point. You know, we are, right. in essence, reacting to some, reacting to government inaction in all kinds of ways. So, for me, it was about going a little bit more upstream and thinking about. Uh, how I could participate in those conversations that are pushing for actually broad, like policy that has um, broader impact uh, and that actually helps uh, advance the types of things that I think have been neglected for a long time as a result of, you know, a generation after generation of uh, a neoliberal agenda. That seen yeah. the cutting of services, the downloading of services to nonprofits, and the simply stopping uh, doing things like you know there was a time when our federal government used to build affordable housing, you know, and they would build rental co-op social housing uh, in the '90s as part of uh, Paul Martin and John Cretchen's deficit, deficit slashing. Uh, programs. They stopped building uh, that housing. And look at where we are now. So I think so much of what we're struggling with is a result of political action and political inaction, especially when it comes to things like climate change. Yeah, well, and also, you know, given that given that we understand that supporting people is actually better for the economy, it starts to be really confusing as to why this is even happening. Well, it's not confusing. 
it's like you're saying, it's racially motivated in a lot of ways that we have to confront as a society, right? It's racially motivated, and, and we, we've, we've constructed charity as a default response. So what we do is we say, we, and we don't have conversations about race within uh, those charities. The, move, the food movement is absolutely no exception. I think the food movement has historically and continues to struggle to center racial justice uh, and more and more specifically to center and resist anti-black racism in our work. You know, one of the things that people, you know, we're only starting to see more or more mainstream organizations address this is the food system was built on colonialism. You know, it was built on the theft of land, genocide, and destruction of traditional foodways for indigenous folks, as well as the transatlantic slave trade and the intergenerational impacts of both. You know, it's, it, it, we, we would hear in the food movement uh, lots of advocacy around farmers and the needs that farmers have. But I think routinely, and, and as we're taught in school, you know, um, it's old MacDonald as the farmer that many Canadians uh, think of when we think about farming. We don't think about migrant farmers uh, from the global south, um, you know, black and brown folks that are literally dying. I think the third migrant agricultural worker died just recently. And this is all based on the negligence of both policy as a protection and farm owners. So... And not to mention, so yes, they got sick, but we also have employment and labor laws that exclude migrant workers. They have no rights to minimum wage, overtime pay, limited. They have limited hours of work, uh, limited sorry, limited hours of work or breaks, um, or even the ability to um, collective bargain. You know, this is, it's outrageous. Migrant workers don't have access to minimum wage. That's something I didn't know. They don't have access to, no rights to minimum wage. Um, And often, actually, the Migrant Workers Alliance, I was reading the other day, they heard complaints um, from, so actually, maybe before I talk about the, the alliance, but, you know, in this year alone, there have been 128 reports uh, of migrant workers working multiple weeks without a single day off. The Employment Standards Act guarantees that people who are working in Ontario should have two consecutive days off. Migrant workers are excluded from that. And then in the context of COVID-19, you know, as the Migrant Workers Alliance, um, you know, I've heard tha- over a thousand complaints from migrant workers saying that they're working in spaces where there's a lack of access to protective equipment and crowded, and they're working in really crowded conditions that don't allow for physical distancing. And, you know, the food movement has a lot of work to do because in addition to migrant workers, it's again, black and brown folks that are more likely to work in low wage food systems jobs. Whether it's, you know, um, food service, food delivery, food growing. And we have a government, you know, and then we have uh, the federal government that introduces things like Canada's new food guide that was much lauded. I think this was in, let's see, maybe 2019, 2019. Yeah. Introduced a new food guide where they said, you know, people need to be drinking more water. Um, and less sugary soft drinks. They need to be eating more plant-based food. Plant-based food continues to increase in price. There are still indigenous communities, largely indigenous communities, that lack access to clean drinking water. So it really, for me, helped frame, like, who is this government? Who are our governments working for, and who are they representing when they make policy? Yeah, you mean, like, do they understand what it means to just guarantee water? 
And how long's that been going on? You know, how long have there been boil water advisories in some of these communities? And exactly, and it's not just about a food guide. A food guide's great. What a nice aspirational document. But that's not what the food that looks like um, most children are able to access uh, in school food programs across the country. That's not. Um, it does nothing to address. Also, I hate to go on a little bit of tangent, but it does nothing to address the policing of black and brown bodies when it comes to accessing food. You know, I remember, and this is an American example, but I remember some footage uh, after Hurricane Katrina in in, uh, New Orleans. There was a black woman walking through, you know, flooded waters. And the media that we talked about earlier described her as a looter. Yeah. You know, where when another image of a white woman doing the same thing with a bag of groceries, you know, um, people said, and the media framed this as, look how tragic the situation is. So I think we also have to address, you know, how food access is policed in the spaces that we assume are accessible to, to all that can at least afford it. Yeah, so when you came into, when you came into this work in food security, it was in predominantly white-led. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Food, the, I mean, the food movement looks um, not uh, terribly different than, especially in leadership positions, I should say, not terribly different than corporate Canada. A largely white space, the bigger the budget, and these are nonprofits overall, the bigger the budget, the more likely that it's in, they're going to be led by white men. Right. And so what sort of adjustments did you make at FoodShare with this understanding, like through your perspective? To address to address the added insecurities to black and brown people. Yeah, so it's about what, so I guess I can say what we did in our organization. So we 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 have introduced a number of in, of, of new things and interventions to kind of push back against um, that as a con- that as a, a reality, but also look at how we can recognize it as the current reality and what we can do to address it. So, for example. You know, to it, we um, developed an indigenous advisory circle that advises us on policy programming and some of our advocacy work, as well as how we collaborate with indigenous communities. Because for us, you know, if it's black, indigenous, and other uh, folks of color that are most likely to be food insecure, this work has to be guided by their experience. So mm-hmm. we also set up an advisory committee made up of about 60 folks, predominantly racialized people, who helped us as we developed our strategic plan, our food justice statement, and a bunch of other um, processes. But diving into some of the things we've done, um, we've also, um, when we did looked at our pay grid most recently, we looked at it with a poverty reduction lens. So we gave um, folks on the bottom of the pay grid, and like I said before, we know that folks that are black and brown are most likely to be low-wage workers in the food system. Uh, Food charities are no different. So we provided, uh, we changed our pay grid, and we gave folks on the bottom a 25% increase. You mean within your organization, the employees? In our organization, yep. 25% increase for our lowest paid workers, and then a little bit of an increase uh, for everyone else working their way up, except for the senior leadership. Uh, No no, uh, increase for the executive director, for the directors, and for our senior managers. And then, more recently, we introduced a pay ratio, uh, lowest paid worker to highest paid worker. 
So the lowest, the highest paid worker at Foodshare, myself, the executive director, can make no more than 3.7 times what the lowest paid worker uh, makes. And so that, that's one of the ways that we're drawing attention to the growing income inequality that exists uh, across the country, across the world, but also within nonprofit organizations. We looked at some of our hiring practices, and I think I mentioned anonymized resumes earlier, but we yep. also did things like de-emphasizing paid accreditations, like university. Right. Um, for obvious reasons. University is not equally accessible to us all. So if we uh, make that a requirement, um, an artificial requirement of the work, we're simply imposing a barrier. We also do things like posting uh, what the pay is going to be for each position so folks know before they even apply. And we don't allow negotiation because we know that the data suggests that um, men uh, often and, and often white men are better at negotiating or sorry, I shouldn't say better, are more likely to be approved. More successful in it. Indeed, or? indeed. So we just take that away. We take that away um, right away. But we also do a bunch of other things, you know, like, um, you know, we provide menstrual products for free on site in all of the bathrooms at Food Share. And we're not just doing this work around um, community-based interventions to support access to fresh produce. We're also advocating. So when the Premier of Ontario said he's going to, uh, you know, there was a planned increase of minimum wage. It was planned to go from 14 to 15. When he announced that that was going to be scrapped, we publicly challenged the Premier to uh, live for the rest of his term on $14 an hour. For that's what he was expecting Ontarians to do. Yeah. As well as, you know, doing things like pushing for more collection of race-based data. Yeah, that feels like a really big thing in Canada, that we've actively avoided race-based data on everything. Yeah, and this is one of the ways that I think we have to be cautious of these narratives where people jump to say, oh, at least we're not like the United States. Yes. Because in the United States, at the very least, you know, at least they're willing in more places than we are to collect race-based data, which makes it so unavoidable to confront. We seem in lots of ways unwilling to do that. But it's, it's one about collecting the data, because it's not enough to collect the data and say, oh, look how horrible things are. Right. It's about what is the action plan as a result of the data that, that um, is being on Earth. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels like, I mean, it feels like not wanting to, I know, I hear what you're saying absolutely about like, we don't need any more studies, but the avoiding of even having a study seems like a deeply Canadian thing so that we go so far back to not have to confront anything that's obviously going on around us. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the, the pleasantries that comes with white supremacy, you know, <laughs> uh, an avoidance of the impact of a legacy of oppression. Uh, has on racialized folks and looking at and being confronted with the data that suggests that reinforces that. But, you know, really, you know, when I talk about an action plan, I think we really need to embrace a health equity approach. Like that's the only, we, we, we need to, we need to um, use that data to then inform how we act and how we address issues um, in a way that um, prioritizes equity. Um, we're getting close to the end here and thank you for your time, but I just wanted to ask you before, uh, before we go, um, what are you doing to take care of yourself these days? 
I know you're a very busy person. <laughs> Good question. What are you doing to enjoy? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I go on my walks, but I also, I also, um, so food share uh, to support our work, we sell something called a good food box. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, people can buy it for as low as $16. They can buy it online. Um, uh, at, at, I should, I should say the website. I guess they can buy it on, online at goodfoodbox.foodshare.net. It's delivered to their homes. Um, so I've been purchasing a weekly box and we're all about providing access to grade A produce for everyone. So no donated items, no leftovers, um, fresh, beautiful produce. So I've been getting one of those boxes each week and my goodness, it's forcing me to, I love cooking. <laughs> But my goodness, I think I've never cooked with this many vegetables and I'm loving it. So I remember, yeah, a friend of mine got one of those like farmer's market boxes. And I remember her calling me in a panic being like, Becky, what's a rutabaga? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's uh, yeah, I've had to. um, uh, And I see the posts online, you know, people um, from time to time will tag me and say, what do I do with this thing that I've gotten? You know, it's uh, it's pretty special. It feels pretty good, and I, you know, cooking is one of the things that uh, really helps uh, keep me calm and nourished during uh, during all of this. So these boxes, you buy them for sixteen dollars for yourself, and that's it. You can anyone can do that. Anyone can do that, and it supports our work. You know, it's it's like we're not a for profit organization, obviously. So we're not looking to build some, buy someone's cottage, you know, we're not looking to, we're looking to have an impact in the communities in which we work. So and the price point is much more affordable um, and gets delivered to people's homes. And one thing I'll add, so, so maybe before I'll add this piece is people can save money accessing beautiful fresh produce, but also support food justice. Um, they can sign up for our fresh weekly delivery and the fruits and vegetables get delivered right to their door. And we've recently added things like breads, beautiful breads from Mabel's Bakery, honey from Black Creek Community Farm, coffee from our friends at Alternative Grounds, oh, and, wow. and meat. So I haven't had to, I barely have had to leave the house to buy any groceries at all. And so just the one thing that I'll add is during COVID-19, we recognized that we had this initiative that was bringing food to people at a time where people were uh, self-isolating um, and, and not wanting to get out to grocery stores. So we then said, wait a minute, we, we can do something here. So we started raising money so that we could provide free emergency good food boxes. So we worked in partnership with 80 organizations, quickly developed relationships with 80 organizations across the city organizations that predominantly work with the folks that are uh, black, indigenous, um, other POC folks, other people that are vulnerable sex work, survival sex workers, organizations and folks working with undocumented workers like the Workers Action Center. So we've been able to distribute over 300,000 pounds of fresh produce for free delivered to um, people's homes as a result of donations that we've received to support our work. That's amazing. And also now we know that the people doing the deliveries have wage equity of some description, right? Yeah, not only that, but during COVID-19, or and, 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 and I should note, it remains in place. We provided a $4 an hour increase to all of the folks that, were, um, that are out uh, packing produce for us, delivering produce. Um, you know, those are our essential workers who are putting themselves at risk even more so now. So we wanted to acknowledge that and... 
we provided yeah. that increase. And also we've had a huge, you know, we've hired over 60 people, which we really appreciate being able to do at a time where, you know, quite a few people face insecurity around employment. And we've hired a chunk of those 60 people are actually international students who were, you know, in essence, neglected by the government whose, uh, whose schools closed. Um, they weren't able to get back home. And, um, you know, sh uh, struggled a lot here with accessing employment. So we were able to say, how do we use, uh, how do we leverage the work that we're doing and our capacity to have the biggest impact possible? Um, so it's even in, yeah, who we're hiring and how we're hiring. So as international students, they're able to work in this country, but they didn't qualify for the CERB. Indeed. Oh, gosh, it's a million things you don't think about. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, or the million things that our government doesn't think about. You know, it shouldn't be up to us to have to constantly be thinking about these things. You know, we should live in, we live in one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, yeah. I don't know why everyone that lives here can't expect a decent quality of life. Like that to me is profoundly problematic. We have 45 billionaires in this country. I think there's work that they could be doing uh, to pay their fair share just a little bit more. Yeah. Or a lot more. There was um, a conversation I had recently because I, you know, I get really stressed out about these things and just spin out and don't know what to do. And it's like, you know, I feel like someone like myself who honestly has been, you know, I, I don't make a ton of money. I'm underemployed, but it's like, oh, I, I, I must have too much. And he was like, Becky, calm down. We live in a c culture and a society of plenty. It's there. Oh, absolutely. We're just not, we're purposefully not, as a society, giving it to some people. Yeah, it is well, yeah. being given to others. The, the, the economy, our society is working just the way it was designed to. Exactly. That thing of it's not broken. Yeah, it's not broken at all. It's working to benefit the few. And 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 um, everyone else is forced to try and find some way to fend uh, for themselves. I guess I do have another question for you. Since what... How did you feel about the one process of running as an MP? Oh, that sounds like a whole other show. It is. Okay, I guess it's like... Uh... <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was a really um, special experience. I got to meet so many people <laughs> in my community. I got to have conversations around with, uh, you know, at people's doors. I would spend eight to nine hours knocking on doors, talking with folks about what was important to them. You know, I felt like it was such a real privilege to be able to do that. I have to say, I've never met you in person, but you and a team of canvassers was coming up to my place to knock on doors as I was like leaving for work at one point. So I didn't get to oh, meet you. No way. Oh, I'm sorry we missed you. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to talk to you too. And also full disclosure at the end of the podcast, you had my vote. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, maybe obviously given that I reached out to talk to you, but. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I was like, I was like, who is this like collection of people? And I realized it was you and then had to go to work. <laughs> no <laughs> problem. Hello. But I'm glad we did finally get to connect. Yeah. And um, maybe another time we'll talk about political systems. I think. <laughs> oh, anytime. I think we have to, we have to vote, but we also have to get food into people's mouths right now. Oh, and. Yeah. So this is coming out on Monday, the 29th. Um, you have an event tomorrow online. So yes, that's right. We are Tuesday hosting a panel uh, called Black Food Sovereign Black Women on Black Food Sovereignty. So we have uh, a moderator and four panelists. The four panelists are, are black women from three different countries. Who um, It's at 2 p.m. 
and it's going to be streamed on our Facebook and Instagram as well for folks that weren't able to to get a, a free ticket on Eventbrite. And we're also selling um, canvas totes, beautiful, beautiful canvas totes that we had designed by an illustrator that has um, all of their faces on it and their names and says, Black Women Advance Food Justice. It's pretty beautiful. I encourage people to, to purchase one, and that too supports our work. Amazing. I'll put up links to all of that, and I'm really looking forward to tuning into the panel. Awesome. Thank you so much, Becky. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye now. word podcast is a proud member of the shop family of productions follow the shop on instagram at the shop underscore to artwork this week by stephanie cormier and our theme music is always by laura barrett for information on all our artists and guests please follow us everywhere at the h word pod or sign up for our newsletter at the h word pod.com.